Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Edward Brennison, who's an incredible film, TV, and game composer based out of Los Angeles. Edward got his start as a jazz guitarist in France and has now worked on a million incredible composition projects, such as being the lead composer for League of Legends and writing music for projects like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Dr. Oz, Honor of Kings, The Macy's Fourth of July Spectacular, and oh so much more. In this episode, we talk about the long uphill climb it takes to become a full-time composer, as well as what it takes to sustain a fantastic career, how to find music projects, and how to fight that initial uphill battle at the beginning of any creative career. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Edward Brennison. All right, so first thing I want to hear about is growing up in France and picking up that guitar for the first time. I want to hear about how that kind of first spark happened, because most people pick up guitar and learn three pop songs and then quit. But it was different for you. So I want to hear all about that. You know, I, I think that if you could paint yourself a picture of like the kid who gets introduced by music that was not listened into his household, which was rock for me, by, by a friend and, and starts playing air guitar, you know, j- jumping on his bed and stuff, playing with a, a tennis racket. That was me. A friend of mine, we had a, an older brother, you know, he was really into Queen and U2. And I started listening to that. And I remember the first time I heard Bohemian Rhapsody, I was like, I have no idea what this is. I love it. And it was, uh, yeah, somebody turned the lights on. And it's funny because, you know, I now that I talk about it, like, it's easy to say, like, 30 years later, how that led to all these things. But you know, if, I, if I'm thinking about Queen and U2, you know, and, and the guitar, it's Brian May and The Edge with their super recognizable sound, really unique, and how I've always loved playing with sound after that. And talking about Queen, it's in, in the realm of pop music that had that kind of prog rock edge to it. And, you know, the, the kind of extended form is something I took with me for when I was doing like things like contemporary jazz or even prog rock at some point when I was younger. And now that I write music for video games and film and and that stuff, like, of course, you know, it's got all sorts of transitions and theme A, theme B, theme C when you go crazy. And yeah, so it started that way. I also started, I I had this like old uh, cassette tape recorder and I, I remember starting to, record dumb things like you know me playing the guitar and little songs and drawing like the, uh, the album cover on the cassette tape and, and just like going with that i think i still have it somewhere but that that came immediately with playing the guitar it was kind of that same thing you know the the production aspect of things like how how do you leave something tangible coming from something that is just waves in the air and then it was just a matter of, of loving music and just going after 
all these things that you know you you grow up I, I was 10 you know and the first album i ever bought with my money which incidentally just celebrated its 30th anniversary was u2's octum baby which is still one of my all-time favorite albums just sounds still to this day to my ears incredibly fresh but yeah after that you know went through all sorts of rock stuff and then i i fell into jazz and that was wonderful as well and started listening more and more to classical music and i i decided to become a, a professional musician with the idea that i would be a, a player performer i did study a little bit of, of writing but really my focus was on on performance interestingly enough while i was studying music after high school i started doing arrangements and, and production for singer-songwriters and that's where i learned like anything that has to do with the gizmos here because there was really no formal training there except like hey let's figure it out and, and make a little bit of money with that so basically yeah on top of my studies i was i was busy trying to have people let me help them with their music and started building that and, and building the production aspect of things which is something i you know i never had any formal training with but later on would would end up being some invaluable knowledge for what I do now on a daily basis. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you went to the American School of Music in France, and that's not a thing that a lot of people think about. It's like, I'm going to pick up the guitar, I'm going to learn it, and now I'm going to go to music school. Even though in our sphere, we know so many people who do that. Yeah, But you did that, and then you went to Berkeley afterwards. And yes. these aren't common things that people think about. There must have been something that made you think, ah, it's time for music school. Did like friends and family push you to do it? Did you get encouragement? Was it weird? So when I was in high school, I, I wanted to become a professional musician. I met this girl and fell madly in love with her. Worst thing could have ever done for me <laughs> at that time. <laughs> but I did and decided, you know what? I'm going to have kind of a stable life. Let me do something. Let me go to law school. And in France, you, you go to university after you, after high school, which is law school directly. There's no college ah. to speak of. So I, I did start schooling there. And after a semester, I, I was just literally physically sick of it. So I, I went back to music. And part of the thing is I told my parents the day before one of my midterms, I sat them down in the kitchen, I remember, and I was like, I'm quitting law. I am never, ever going back. And I always took lessons and always loved learning, but that was also part of the deal when I told them, like, I'm quitting law, but this is what I'm going to do. Didn't prevent my mom from crying that night, but, <laughs> you know, that, that was part of the thing, you know, making sure that I was not just going to go out in, in the wild. And, and also I was interested in, in music that at that time, and probably to some degree still now is, is beyond my natural ability, you know? So I, I knew I needed to learn a, a certain number of things. And, and that's something that for me, school was the right thing at that, at that time. But when I went to Berkeley, I had, you know, already like five years of, of post-secondary conservatory schooling behind me. So I went to Berkeley and like tested out of literally everything. I, and I spent four semesters there in, in a row. I burned through everything. So it was a very different experience because I knew what I was going to Berkeley for. And I got some things there that I wouldn't have gotten anywhere else. Somewhere in there, though, there was like a trigger that made you think, ah, film, TV, video games, 
composing for media as opposed to being a jazz guitarist or just a guitarist. So when did player to composer, when did that shift start to happen? Was it during Berkeley or was it later? So, you know, when I was doing the arranging for songwriters thing, there was an element of technology and, and the intersection of music technology and picture that became really interesting for me. And I befriended this, this composer from Denver, Colorado, or rather he befriended me through a, a website that was called Motu Nation, which was the user board for digital performer users. And it's like, oh, I see you're from France, blah, blah. His name was Jerome Gilmer, wonderful guy. And, and we kept in touch many, many years uh, after that. And, and he was a composer for picture and gave me some some little work and, and was looking after me and the things I was doing. And I, you know, I, I was also interested in composition, but more on the concert side, you know, I, I loved and still do love chamber music a lot. So, that, you know, there was that. There was the fact that there's a lot of things I love in life. And one of those things is anything with moving pictures in it, whether it's video games, similar television, like I just consume that. So it's part of me. And that's something I discovered a little later in life. You know, I hear a lot of people saying, oh, you know, I, I saw Star Wars when I was eight and it changed my life forever. It was not that for me. I listened to Queen for the first time when I was nine and that changed my life forever. The uh, music for film thing that came a little later. I, I remember the first time I became really sensitive to it was when I saw The Fifth Element. Yeah, incidentally, the movie's from a French director with French composer. It's nothing to do with that. I just, I don't know, something about the score and the emotion and the character and how everything was super colorful, like kind of tickled me uh, really funny. You know, it was also a really profoundly hybrid score. You know, it had uh, a traditional orchestra. It had some like ethnic music things, a lot of electronic stuff, the, that crazy voice thing he did with a sampler. And my thing now has a lot to do with what I first experienced. Fast forward a few years, considering going into film scoring at Berkeley, but instead opted to just keep going with the guitar. And, uh, you know, I wish I'd done both, actually. That said, the jazz thing at, at Berkeley, you know, I, I came in and I was... And I still am, you know, the biggest Pat Metheny fan. <laughs> and I, I show up at Berkeley and there's like 500 people like me. <laughs> and I'm like, well, this is not going to work out, my friend. <laughs> you know, it cannot be 500 Pat Metheny's flooding the streets of New York City. Nobody gives a shit about that. You need to be your own person. And, you know, so I, I actually broke that entire thing you know a picture of my musical identity as a sand castle i just stepped on it and <laughs> rebuilt everything and the cool thing with jazz and and what it taught me with regards to now what i do in writing music for moving pictures is the whole issue of language you know making sure that you can create something out of certain rules that means something in a specific context and music is a language, it has vocabulary, it has grammar, it has sounds. And that is something that understanding how to dismantle that and reassemble it in a way that felt like it was true to my intentions and to my sound, that software, I can use it forever on everything. And, and you know, the cool thing with, with jazz and how it, it like kind of 
took all of the, those influences across the years and, and made it into its own language. I do the same thing with music for moving pictures. I'm not a musicologist. I can write music that sounds like X, Y, or Z, or rather is evocative of ancient Greece or evocative of Versailles and, and you know the, the mirrors and the castle or evocative of two centuries from now. But I'm not bound by the rules of making sure that my harmonic language is exactly what so-and-so would have done you know, at, at that time. I'm free of that to some degree, which is great. So I, I'm free to just blend all these elements and do what I need to do to evoke those times, those places, those people, those characters, and also invent that stuff, uh, which is my favorite thing in that job. Mm -hmm. And somewhere in that kind of like breakdown and reinvention, that sandcastle tipping over moment, you start to get projects, you know, like League of Legends came about and you probably started to work on a bunch of other smaller things when you were first starting to get into like composition and all the tech side. How did those first things start coming in? Like those first little things when you start dipping your toe, how did those come about? So I'll, t I'll tell you exactly how, uh, how it went down. I was living in New York and a friend of mine who had gone to Berkeley and was this now film scoring major working in LA, started doing video game and film trailer rescores. And I know, you know, now that I've seen people coming out of school, a lot of the stuff you do in some projects early on is rescoring that stuff. So I started doing that for myself. You know, I, I, I had the computers, I had that knowledge of like music production. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm just going to get like libraries and, and we'll see how it goes. So I started doing that for fun. And then one day on the Berkeley Alumni Network, you know, there was a job posting. Somebody was looking for a composer for their short film. And I send some of my music and I get the gig. And the guy's like, oh, you know, I got about 70 uh, <laughs> emails and stuff. And, you know, I decided I decided to work with you. And I'm like, well, this is cool. I, it should have like kind of raised a, a red flag, you know, like the, <laughs> just the amount of people that, that are pitching for this. And, and it was a really cool, really well-produced short film, like obviously very professional project. And the director actually went back to India where he's from and is now directing a really big projects, which is, which is super cool. So that, that was my, my first experience, you know, like a, a legit, small, but legit project. And that, led to other little projects. And then when I moved to New York was in the, in the fall of 2008, just a month before the subprime crisis uh, hit. And I would start like seeing clubs shutting down every week or so. It was really impressive. And, you know, it was a really hard time for, for the entire musician community there. And New York was this kind of, it, it's probably my favorite city in the world, but not a city in which I want to live in at this point. And nor did I want to live in, in that city anymore at that time. So um, my wife and I decided to travel to the West Coast and figure out if LA was the right thing because, you know, I was considering a, a career change because I started, you know, getting more and more work in that field. And I moved to LA and started doing additional music for a number of, of things. But the, the first project was this short film, a complete fluke. I had no idea what I was doing. It did not go well. <laughs> you know, ultimately <laughs> the director was happy, but we had 
a crazy amount of misunderstandings on what he wanted and what I thought he wanted. And, and I didn't quit. I rewrote the score maybe five or six times over. But it, it taught me a number of lessons that I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure in actual schooling years would, would take a little longer than the, the month or two that I spent on this, which is, after so many years, one of my favorite memories of just a crash course in creative relationships in art and music. Mm -hmm. And so much of what we do is creative relationships. It's it's crazy. Yeah. Now now that I've some insight on, on what I've done and what I do on a daily basis, I'd say it, it's all about that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we, we, we are using music, but our job, composers and sound designers, is not terribly different from being in makeup or catering or, or anything like that. It's it just like somebody has a vision for what they want and your job is to help them realize that vision. And I'm firmly against talking about my work as anything but nuts and bolts and, and just assembling things together. I leave it to others if they want to call it art. I don't do that. There's a creative side of me who will sit down in, in dark room and cry for hours listening to so-and-so, but that is my private emotional journey. What I do is a job, and my job is to realize somebody else's vision. That's my main job. My second main job is to get hired again. That's huge. That's, that's a big nugget right there. And when you first kind of moved out to LA because there's so many, you know, composers graduating and stuff. There's a lot of self-promotion involved, whether it be online or whether it be talking to people in person, going to events, whatever. How did you kind of make sure that people knew you existed? And because there's 300 other people applying for all those film scoring jobs, those game scoring jobs, how did you make sure people knew like, oh, we could actually work on something together as opposed to just being a name on a list? So I, you know, when I moved out to LA, my entire network from Berkeley was jazz people living in New York City, <laughs> with the exception of maybe one or two people who ended up moving to the West Coast. Slim pickings. But I, I got lucky that, you know, that person knew composers who needed help with writing music for actual TV shows. And that's how I started working on doing additional music for things like Yu-Gi-Oh! And I never really worked as an assistant for anybody. That that was never my trajectory. I started working, writing music right away. Granted that that I'm not recommending that to people. I'm not saying it was the best way because I, I certainly know people who, when the assistant wrote, we've gotten a, a lot out of that. But I started writing right away and that's what I kept on doing. It, it took me a while to figure out the networking and making sure people know me kind of a thing. I don't have it down to a science just yet. But I'd say my epiphany came as recently as two years ago. And I remember briefly uh, talking about it with you. And, and I'm somebody who's deeply shy, and, and I try to hide it as well as I possibly can. But the idea of going to a convention and introducing myself to strangers, I've had like breakdowns at GDC where I've had to run back to my hotel room and... and just, you know, fetal position for a couple hours during the middle of the day, I swear, just like, not for me. I, I you know, and I, I kept doing that. And I, I still do that. And I, I, I enjoy it more. But that part is, is just not for me. 
one thing that I've learned on, on so many different levels is to just to know myself and know what works with me. And recently, I figured out that the best thing for me, which I've always known, was the one-on-one interaction with people, but to just reach out to the people who make the things I love and tell them, I love this. I love this. This is amazing. What I love about it is this. What I love about this is that. Because you did this, I did that thing. And thank you. And by the way, here's some of my work. And he comes from a place where I I feel empowered to do that because I'm not going to say there's no agenda. The idea is to to open a, a communication, but there's no harm in me possibly saying, I love your stuff to somebody. There's no way that it will make people feel bad, that it will make me look bad. You know, if it's genuine, there's no way I can fail. And that felt like it was just my really a, a good way for to, to work with who I am, who's basically a big introvert, somebody who doesn't like being in the spotlight. Uh, I don't care for it. And I sometimes I do do it because, you know, visibility is, is a huge part of what this business is about. There's no such thing as a, a working bedroom composer. It does not exist. You have to be out there. People have to know you. You have to know people. And that's something you have to develop. But yeah, basically, I, I you know, that thing of, of being visible for me took a, a number of years to, to make it happen. And I used to think that it was all about the music. I've made that mistake for a long, long time. And if there's anything I would I would tell people that I do tell people still to this day is it doesn't matter where you think you are. What matters is that people know who you are. and. I had this thing where I was like, hey, you know what? I really want to be working on that type of project. So I'd be like, hmm, let me look at my uh, at my reel. And I'm like, oh, you know, it's missing a cue like this and a cue like that and a cue like this and a cue like that. And I'd be, you know, doing spec work on my own and, and stuff and be like, hmm, okay, now I have it. Oh, but, you know, I'm missing this and missing that. If you start looking at the things you don't have, you will never go anywhere. Of course, now it's easier to say because I, you know, I have a lot more things behind me to to show that I can, I can do certain things. But there's still projects where I'm like, well, I would really love to be doing X, Y, or Z, but I don't really have the reel to do that. Although I'm pretty sure I could do it, and it doesn't matter. You have to reach out. I think some of that came from where I wasn't sure what was needed for specific jobs in, in terms of like demonstrating I could do it. I think it came from not only insecurity, but also a certain amount of selfishness, you know, where where I was like, people won't understand if I cannot demonstrate that properly. And it's true to a certain degree, you know, especially in 2021, where everybody has at the touch of a button access to millions of hours of pristine quality music streaming on their Apple watches. Insane. But... What I didn't understand is, and, and didn't respect was this thing that there is beauty to be found in everybody's work, but it's not up to you to manifest it. It's not up to you to unveil it. Your job is to do your best. Somebody will recognize that in you. 
And that's the part that needs to happen is that you can try and, and put your best foot forward, your all, everything in the product that you're doing. If you're not showing it, if you're not advertising it, if you're not giving a chance for people to fall in love with it somehow, that relationship will just never happen. Yeah. That's a really good point. And there's a lot to dive into there because you you hit on something that I've always thought too, which is like the music isn't the only thing that people are necessarily going to look at. Because if no one knew who John Williams was and then he posted the Star Wars theme today, no one would notice. There's a lot more moving parts to this whole business. And you've made your business super sustainable. Like you have constant gigs coming in. It is not just a feast or famine thing where it's like, oh, I got a gig and now it's nothing for a year, which I see with a lot of composers. And is there anything you're doing to keep it going? Because getting a gig is one thing, but getting more is another. So, and I will preface this by saying that we've had a little more than two years of really difficult times for a lot of people. And and I certainly empathize with that. But I've had an incredible ride the past couple of years. And it's been just, just amazing to the point that I, you know, this is the end of 2021 and I'm going to take a week off very, very soon. And it, it will be my first string of more than one day off in I don't know, just a, a long time. I've been working a lot and part of that is a sheer luck and luck. I, I define it as the intersection of readiness and opportunity, just Hey, there's one thing. Let's capture that. Let's make it happen. Boom. But another part of that is pure grind and making sure that you're consistent with your outreach efforts, which is what I like doing about my business development thing is that I I love this idea that I am rightfully or wrongfully or, you know, whether or not it's something that actually works that way, it doesn't matter to me as much as I like the feeling of it. I like being in control, a particular aspect of that. You know, I know that it can be really hard when the telephone doesn't ring. And I love the idea that somehow, however futile my efforts might be, that me trying to connect does make a difference. I'm sure it does. It has, it, it, it is. But I, I think that's part of the, the thing you want to do to keep growing your business. I also think that there's a lot of things you can do to keep on learning and staying relevant. And that's a, that's a very broad topic. I've lost certain gigs. Like, uh, I, you know, I've made demos of on projects I was sure I was going to get. Did not get those. Where, where the music, my music was in the brief. And I was like, oh my God, piece of cake. You know, like... They, they want me to do my shit. And yeah, of course, I, I'm going to get the gig. Does not work out that way. So whatever thing you can do to learn how to be better is, I mean, it sounds it's an absolute truism, but just don't overlook the things that you think you, you, you know. And the other, the other aspect of all of this is nothing to do with music, but it, it's, it has everything to do with service. There's an incredible number of us out there there's a lot of very successful people there's also a lot of very successful people you don't hear about and there's a lot of people who are not successful that you hear about all the time because they're spending too much time on forums and not enough time (laughs) doing the thing but i I do think that what separates the people that make it from the people that don't is also not only the quality of the product but 
how they're making that product. And, and that, again, took me a, a long time to figure it out. And, and there's been different times in my career where I thought the equation was different. It turns out it never was. Really, you are here to be pleasing the people you're working with. And I'd say no matter the cost, this is a, a buyer's market. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you don't have the option to be a diva. You don't have the option to be unreliable. You don't have the option of being average. Now, if you're doing your best, and if you have that service mindset, and if you know what your business is, which is not to write great music, uh, that's something you are lucky to do sometimes, but it is not your business. When you understand all these things, then the problem becomes just incredibly crystal clear. This is what you need to do to sustain your business and make sure you leave a really positive memory, you know, and, and game development or, or television or stuff like, I, I mean, it's people are dealing with deadlines with their bosses, with their families, with their PCs that are freezing. So everybody's got problems, right? You don't want to be an extra problem. You don't want to be remembered as X, Y, or Z and, and you know, being a problem for, for someone. When, when you're growing your business, you will be relying on partners to help you achieve certain things. You know, and there are people helping me in my job, and they could be orchestrators and copyists and mixers and additional music composers. I have a lot more respect for great service and great attitude now that I'm uh, a busy small business owner. I, there are tremendously talented people in our industry. But the people that you want to work with are the people that say, sure, no problem. Thank you. <laughs> and, and, you know, it doesn't matter that you're, you're extremely talented if you're impossible to work with. And I know where that stems from. You know, I, I, think, I think sometimes people get invested with this idea that music comes first and you are upholding high art and a certain way of doing things. And I, I respect that. And I was that person. And I, and I know I felt at the time, and, and it was not coming from a place of trying to antagonize people or being a, a pest. No, I was trying to do the best I could with my understanding of that situation. And I was just wrong. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I agree that the service part of it almost matters more <laughs> than the actual thing you're doing. And there's like last time we talked, I think it was like a year ago at this point, there's like some subtle things that you told me about, which I love, like you personalize all your demo reels when you're pitching for projects, you put the client's name, you make it like it's a nice little present that you're giving to them. So they feel really good. I love stuff like that. And then also, you you now work with, you know, Hollywood scoring, and that's a whole service in and of itself. That is a place that has tons of customers, other composers, people who come to compose and work with live musicians. Can you talk about how you think about that kind of service mindset across everything that you're doing? Is it the same thing, like some concrete examples of how you make it so people feel good at the end of the day working with you? You know, good point in customizing whatever thing you present to to anybody. I uh, When I try to reach out to someone or try to get their business or try to get their attention or, or just try to say hi, and one thing I hate as being a consumer of the internet <laughs> is getting stuff that's impersonal. I am not just a number. If you're trying to get my attention, a pop-up will, window will, will not do. It will irritate me. If I'm getting a, an email saying, 
Hi, I just graduated from this or that. Here's my music. I hope you need an assistant. Hire me. No. <laughs> no. Why are you reaching out to me? You know, what's the connection there? Why should I even start to spend 10 minutes of my time that I don't have? Give that to you who I don't know. Like, what's going to be the trigger for that? So that that's the whole idea is like trying to figure out that in order to be happy at my job and deal with the amount of bullshit that we all deal with, because honestly, it's, it's not a particularly easy job uh, dealing with revisions, with clients changing their opinions, their, their minds, miscommunications, being in post-production overall. You know, you're always at the end of everything, especially in, in music and sound. You're the last person in line. People have exhausted their patience with everything else. You know, how, how do you make sure that you still love your job at the end of the day? And I think it's, it's an issue of making a positive, service-centric attitude. You are here to make somebody's life better and their project better. That mentality, I think, cares across hopefully everything I do, whether it's my separate freelance career or, or what I do with the Hollywood scoring. And there's always like different levels of how involved you are with the service. But I, I know Hollywood Scoring and I are working on a really big live game that's going to be hitting the Western world very soon. And that game is Harry Potter Magic Awakened, which is now live in China and is, as of last week, the most downloaded game in China before Honor of Kings and League of Legends, which should give you an idea of just... You know, you're talking about a scale over there that's just insane. And, you know, I, we were talking with a um, contact at NetEase, and that was two nights ago. And he said, you know, what I love about you guys is that, you know, the work you do is great, but you're just so flexible because they're pivoting constantly and, and like kind of doing this thing where it's, it's a massive operation on a massive project. But it's got the fluidity of, of an indie game almost. That, that's what it feels like to me. You know, just, oh, we're, we're actually going to be restructuring this event, merging it with this one, catering to the taste of the Western audience more. But we want to make sure that our demographics feel like they have something that they can do. And we got to be checking with our partners at Warner Brothers and 4 Games to make sure that this works with them. We'll get back to you tomorrow. And tomorrow, everything changes. And you have to be able to just within reason, of course, just make sure that you match the way your clients work, not the other way around. And sure, it is complex, it is complicated, and you have to kind of be able to deliver a message sometimes when you need to push back and say, hey, I know you have those expectations, here's what's realistic, and here's what we could do to try and push you in that direction and make it happen the way you want. But ultimately, if there's something that you can exercise on your end to be more flexible, that will be to your benefit. And then it becomes all the more important that you surround yourself with people who are flexible. And flexibility, sure, sometimes it's, it's a matter of just being able to be quick in the way you address certain things. And that can take a toll because, you know, ultimately we'll have a finite amount of time and energy. But I think more importantly, it's a mindset issue and that when somebody gets back to you with notes and obviously they were wrong <laughs> <laughs> and they sent you in the wrong direction, at least with me, as long as they're, they're being nice about it, because there are people who tell you one thing and then say 
they, they listen to your work, you deliver exactly against that brief, and they're like, well, this is not what we asked for. Yes, it is. And they're being dicks about it. That happens. Mm-hmm. I still, you know, put my smiley mask on and say, oh, let me let me fix that for you. Especially when people are being nice about it. You know, this is like, well, you know, actually, it turns out it's not really what we need. And here's why. And sorry for this and that. Just do it. Just be like, okay, we're going to fix this. We're going to make this work. And that works so well. And it's also great because then you're taking care of the notes and it's not your, it's not your fault. It's not, you know, this or that. And, and you're like, I'm going to make this feel better for everybody. That is exactly what you need to do. And then you get hired again. Then you get hired again. Hopefully. Sometimes not. Sure. But uh, the chances of getting hired again when you do that are, you know, <laughs> nobody wants to work with assholes, however talented they are. Yeah. Because there's so many talented, great people here. Yeah, it's true. And uh, that feeling of having someone in your corner while you're stressed out, like heads will roll if I fuck up. So, oh, God, please make the music good. Oh, God, I don't want to think about it. It's so nice. It's just a nice feeling for them to have to know ah, he's in my corner. She's in my corner. It's fine. And you know what? I had an issue on the project earlier this year, something that hasn't been released yet for a big Chinese developer. And that was my first project with them. And they've hired me again, (laughs) which is good. But I told my agent, I was like, I'm having such a hard time with them. Like, this is revision number 10. And I don't understand what it is that they want. I keep asking questions and I feel like they're losing their patience. But I'm also churning revision after revision after revision. And my agent, Koyosone, who's amazing at at that type of stuff. He's like, you know, I, I found that really what you want to do is making sure you know who you're talking with. Are they the decision maker? Are they being told one thing by their team and then having to relay that, you know, the the wrong information, stuff like that. But make sure you, when you communicate with them, that you try and create that connection that is not so much about being us versus the others, but like we're working together to solve that problem versus being like, you know, however polite and professional you're about it, you never want to come across as like a person that says, I have this problem, but more like, hey, can we fix this together? It's a very subtle reframing of things, but I took his advice to heart and that turned the entire thing around right away, which is just instead of saying like, I don't understand what you mean by this or that, saying like, can you ask the team to clarify what they mean by this or that? Can we come together to make this work for us? Very simple, very very simple. It's crazy. And that's the beauty also of our job is that you realize that that interpersonal thing, you can refine it and become better at it in, in very small increments and in very detailed ways that yield amazing results in, in the same way that you can become a better sound designer, a better composer, a better artist just by learning the craft. So there is a craft to our business communication side. And it's wonderful. That's a perfect note, a very positive note to start wrapping all this up. Because there's there's a question I ask everybody who comes on here, which is when you first started in music, that could be when you first picked up the guitar, it could be when you were first going to music school, whatever starting point you want to pick. What was your definition of success and how has that changed over time? And what is it now? I don't think I can answer that question, but I can answer another question. There, There is something that when I was growing up, even even in my early adulthood, 
I think everybody aspires to success, but not everybody has the absolute confidence that it is for them, that they're deserving of that deep down. And that was me for a long time. And certainly not everybody is ready to make the sacrifices to achieve that success. And that was never me, but I didn't think deep down I was deserving of success. And therefore my efforts were misguided. And I, I think there's something that you need to ask yourself, which unfortunately, unless you're presented with that question very early on in your life, somehow and understand it with the maturity that you need to properly find that answer, it may take a long time if you're not meeting success organically to, to figure that out. But one question I would ask myself is, are you ready to be successful? Do you want to be successful? And what are you going to do about it? <laughs> because I've seen a lot of people, including very talented craft people, whose demeanor and, and certainly their actions don't necessarily meet up with their expectations. And I think that's why people get jaded and frustrated, even working people, where it's like, well, I should be there. You know, that should be me. And when you know them a little bit or the stuff they, they send out into the ether, it doesn't match that expectation. So look deep down inside of you. Do you actually want success? And if you do, make sure you feel like you deserve it because that is going to be the single biggest driver of everything you do to achieve that success. I love that. That is killer advice. Now, final, final question as we wrap up. Where can people find you? Plug anything that you want to share. I think the best place to find me is probably on my website, which is eb-music.net. That's my initials because my last name is very hard to, uh, and my first name, actually. Uh, both of them are, are hard to spell. So that's eb-music.net. I am most active on Instagram. I'm actually not a fan of, of Twitter or Facebook. I just... I'm pretty bad, you know, at, at interacting with that stuff. Like, I just don't like it, especially these days. Like, everything's just like, so like, eh. So, yeah, during a pandemic, I've actually like just made sure to impact my immediate surroundings, generally physical or, you know, whether a phone call away. It's not always the best strategy. I know there are people in our industry who are very good with social media, you being one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But I'm just, I'm doing the bare minimum. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so, so much for coming on. There are so many good gold nuggets in here. Well, thanks for having me. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash sound biz pod sound b-i-z pod and that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects they'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound thanks so much i'll see you next time and if you're looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to, this podcast is actually a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. So if you want to check those out, hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.